this being here feels so familiar to me and my friends are so familiar to me. I feel kind of like I went home and did my laundry and came back. You know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like that, that much of a difference. Uh, and I see that there are some people here that I don't know and I'm glad that you're here and happy for you. And I thought about um, uh, the fact that I was coming and that I've been part of this team for all these years and I'm not here now. And I wondered uh, whether that would feel poignant and whether I would feel sad that I'm not here now. I wondered in January how I'd feel in February or whether it would be uh, particularly pleasant that I wasn't here. In January, it's often cold and often raining. It's been a lovely January, actually, uh, February. But, you know, it's been all of those things. I've felt a little sad and a little poignant and a little pleasant, and it's been fine. It's been everything. And what I've actually been thinking about is that the whole of life really is uh, accommodating oneself to the present situation, which is always changing. I'm I'm reminded suddenly of uh, a great note that I got from a friend of mine, oh, in the last year or two, who's in her 90s now, saying that she had moved into an assisted living facility and asking me to come and teach there. She said, I need to have a refresher in meditation. Uh, And she said, I think everybody else here could use it too because I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance. And so part A, of course, is that I went and I did teach. And it's the same dharma wherever you teach in a place where the students are all mostly over 85. The only difference is that you speak louder than other places. (laughs) But otherwise, it's the same dharma. But I, I was very taken by her line and her note where she said, I'm having trouble accommodating to my new circumstance. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, that's the story of life, really, isn't it? For all of us, that we are always accommodating to our new circumstance. The truth, the profound center of the Buddhist teaching is that everything is always changing. And there's a way in which I think about our uh, lifelong project, as our spiritual task and challenge is for the whole of our life, from when we are quite young until the end of our lives, accommodating to the new challenge. I love telling people that when my youngest grandchild, who will be um, six in uh, two weeks, just on the day that this retreat ends, she'll be six years old, and one day last summer, her mother driving the car and looking at her in the rearview mirror, noticing in, uh, sitting her sitting in her car seat in the back, looking worried, said to her, Honor, are you all right? And she said, no, I'm worried. I said, well, what are you worried about? She said, I'm worried about kindergarten. She actually had gone for two years to preschool, but she said, you know, uh, I don't know in the kindergarten where you hang up your coat and where you put your lunchbox and where you put your work. And uh, her mother, of course, said to her, Honor, you know, when you get there, the teacher will tell you where to hang up your coat and your lunchbox. I was actually quite touched, uh, a, little bit, a little bit saddened to see that she really has inherited the family genes for <laughs> worrying in advance about possible complications. But, you know, 
She has to go to a new place and learn where to put the lunchbox and where to put her coat. And, and pretty soon she's going to have to cope with geometry and, and teenage hormones and having a relationship and maybe having a family and figuring out a life work and discovering that her body is getting old and that she needs reading glasses. And the whole of life is one long adjustment from the beginning to the end. And I think to myself that one way to think about the spiritual practices that we learn here and that we practice together is that they are all forms of cultivating a kind of malleability of mind that's able to stay alert, that's able to tell the truth of what's happening, and that finds ways to hold that truth in a way that keeps itself comfortable. Um, I think so much about the techniques that we learn here, and I want to talk about all the things that I have known, even that I wasn't here these few weeks that you've been practicing, practicing concentration, practicing mindfulness, practicing uh, metta in all its forms of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative uh, joy, practicing paramitas in all of the ways that we live in a careful and moral and thoughtful community here that those are all ways of conditioning the mind to be able to accommodate. They keep the mind sweet. They keep the mind balanced. Concentration certainly does. Makes a kind of stability and composure in the mind. They keep the mind clear. That's what mindfulness does. Really, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. They keep the mind sweet, which is what blessing practice does. Every time we make a wish for ourselves or for someone else, in the moment that we are wishing well to someone, whether we are wishing well just in a matter of course, whether we're wishing well because we feel about them or about ourselves that our circumstances are challenged, in that moment of wishing well, there's a sweetness and there's a connection and there's no room for the mind in that point to be in contention because it's in caring. It's in caring connection. I think to myself another way to think about uh, this accommodating to life's changing circumstances and challenges is we're cultivating a mind that's not in contention with life experience, a friendly mind. And I like the idea of not in contention because it seems to me directly a, a paraphrasing of the second noble truth, that the truth of uh, suffering is the need to have things other, is the mind that rejects the moment, that the mind that struggles with the moment just as it is, as a, in contrast with the mind that says, okay, this is what's happening. It's a mind that doesn't fight, and a mind that doesn't fight both out of wisdom, out of knowing it can't be other. This is such a complex life out of a deep understanding of the karma of things, and also a mind that doesn't fight out of an innate uh, understanding that a non-contentious heart, that a friendly heart, is really the best refuge that we have, our own benevolent heart, our heart that doesn't fight. You know, the image from Buddhist... um, tradition is the classical image of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment when after his years, six years of study 
of intensive concentration practice, having learned all kinds of ways of so composing and stilling the mind that he could sit through all kinds of circumstances, but yet feeling that he lacked a certain wisdom that he really wanted, that wisdom that unlocked the key of the cause and the end of suffering. On that night that he sat down under the tree in Bodh Gaya and said, I'm not getting up until I have fully understand the cause and the end of suffering. The image of that, the classical image in Buddhist literature, is the image of the Buddha, cross-legged, one palm up in his lap, and the other fingers, the fingers of his other hands, touching the earth, as if to say, I have a right to be here. Nothing will be moved. I think of that, the refrain, we shall not be moved, as a great refrain in the liberation movements that I've known, in the trade union movements of my childhood, in the civil rights movements of the 60s, we shall not be moved. This is where we are. We have a right to be here. That condition of knowing that I have the determination to be here and not to be knocked off the seat that I rightly can occupy is very thrilling to me. I think to myself, when I occupy uh, my place of equanimity, I can see clearly wisdom is self-relevatory and my own good heart takes care of things. When I get knocked off my seat by being too tired or being too startled or by the enormity of the challenge in my life, or because I'm not careful about cultivating concentra- enough concentration and enough mindfulness or enough sweetness in my mind to stay steady, then I start to make mistakes. And I forget what I used to know. I knew I would tell you this story. I didn't know when I would tell it to you. But it's a story about forgetting what you used to know. Um, because you get confused by an intercurrent mood. And the mood carries you off your place. Let me finish. Here's what I want to do. I want to finish the image of the Buddha who didn't get moved, and then I'll tell you about me getting moved. Okay, here's the image of the Buddha. And here come the forces of Mara, the forces of everything that confuses the mind and stands in the way of seeing clearly. Here comes the forces of Mara who are uh, made in the picture into uh, personified as a being. Here comes Mara on the scene of the Buddha sitting there, assailing the Buddha with all kinds of fearful armaments. They come in the form of spears and flashes of whatever is coming towards the Buddha, armies unleashing their might. And here is the Buddha, and here come all these spears towards him, and he is sitting as if he is enfolded in an impregnable sphere, a protective sphere, and in the commentaries it suggests that he is protected by an aura of benevolence, an aura of loving kindness, an aura of loving kindness seated in such equanimity that it maintains a shield around him. And you see all these arrows coming down around and hitting this shield and turning into flowers and falling on the ground around him. I think that that is such a beautiful image. I love that image of disarming all these these 
possibilities of disturbing the mind and turning them into the sweetness and beauty of flowers. And when those assailing fearful things are finished, here come tempting erotic images. So we get frightened and we move away and we get tempted and we move towards things. And here come all these erotic images that might cause the Buddha to lose his balance and be distracted, but no, no, no. He sits, again, with such poise and such benevolence and such a deep and profound equanimity that all of those erratic temptations are just dispelled. They have nothing to do with them. And in that place and out of that place arises a profound understanding and wisdom. And he understands really a deep understanding of the karma of things and the cause and the end of suffering. So here's a picture of the Buddha. He cannot be moved. I am all the time moved by one or another kind of challenge that catches me broadsides me, frightens me that I'm too tired to stand up to or uh, too surprised by or the enormity of. In those situations, I have no wisdom. And the confusion in the mind that precludes the wisdom also precludes the ability of making a wise choice. So this is a story that I thought I'd tell you sometime because it's just a recent story. My husband and I uh, now are living part of the year in France. And um, when we uh, returned to our home there in the south of France, the last time we went, which is just recently, we found uh, the, uh, that the mattress for the antique bed that we'd bought had arrived in our absence. It had meant to be the bed was that we'd bought we picked it out and it was going to be delivered and the mattress that fit it was going to be delivered along with it and it was and it's a wonderful mattress and along with it came an unexpected bill for 400 euro. That's quite a lot of money in addition to the money that we had paid already for the mattress and that we had understood was part of the deal when we bought it. At the antique deal, I called the antiquaire and I uh, explained about being surprised about the bill because when we bought it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and she replied that, uh, unfortunately, malheureusement, unfortunately, it had happened that uh, because it's an antique bed and an odd size, it had required a, special, a specially made constructed mattress and inner spring and hence the 400 euro extra charge. So now I am going in person to the auntie care to continue the discussion. <laughs> and I'm accompanied by my husband on that trip, goaded on by him, actually, pushed to go by him because he was mad about it and because he doesn't speak French. So, <laughs> so we have a conversation on the way in which he is uh, steaming up about it. He says, oh, so remember to tell her that she agreed that when we bought the bed, she said that the mattress was included and that she would take care of it and it was understood and that the price that we paid was supposed to cover everything and that this is not fair. Explain that to her. I said, well, you know, Madame is an 85-year-old small-town Auntie Kale. She is not Macy's. You cannot give back things and it's not that easy. And he said, well, if you don't discuss it with her, I will pantomime how unhappy I am. 
And uh, at the very least, if she does not want to give us any money back, she could give us one of those end tables that you were looking at when you bought the bed or two. So we arrive at the Antiquaire, and in my very best French, very politely, I explain how we had understood differently and how dismayed we were with the bill and how all of our former transactions had been so gratifying and that the bed was, in fact, excellent and the mattress was excellent. The only thing was that uh, because we really hadn't expected this, uh, it didn't seem fair to us to, to just leave it like this. I, at this point, I was looking quite pointedly at some end tables. <laughs> Maybe there would be some way to make some restitution about, so we would feel that it was more fair because in this, if we left it in this particular way, we didn't feel good about it. We were left with uh, bad feelings, uh, mauvaise émotion. <laughs> so... And that moment, Madame looked suddenly very concerned, and she leaned forward. She put her arm out to touch mine, and she said, "Oh, Madame," she said, "This is all in French, of course." She said, "Madame," she said, "Mauvaise émotion are very bad for you." She said, "You should let them go." <laughs> Just put it down. It's in the past. These things happen. <laughs> so, of course, I'm sitting there, and as this is happening, I'm thinking, think, thinking three things simultaneously. First of all, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get those end tables. <laughs> I'm also thinking that Madame is right. I also was thinking, this is a very good story. <laughs> so, by the way, when we left, we left the store, my husband said to me, what did, uh, it was a, quite a protracted conversation. He said, what did, uh, what was that all about? What did Madame say? I said, Madame said, more or less, that's life. <laughs> and we'll go find some other end table somewhere else. But, when you think about it, what Madame said really is, right? Mauvaise émotion are not good for you. That it really is. Now, now these days, we not only know it from the wisdom of the Buddha and centuries of people reporting it as their personal experience, but we know it from the new kinds of ways of testing brain waves and the fact that people can tell that the mind changes when the mind is relaxed, that when people forgive other people, there are actually neurological changes in the structure of the brain, that the, there's a certain plasticity to the brain for all of our lives, and that people who meditate a lot, people who cultivate forgiveness, people who cultivate deep states of concentration, actually change the way their mind is, and it becomes a more relaxed a pattern of brain waves. And depending on where the brain is most active, you can tell the degree of contentment and happiness that that person is experiencing. So we can now prove it scientifically that mauvaise émotion are not good for you. The next thing that she said, though, about you should put them down, is we should. And we would if we could. 
But it's harder than that. You probably know that from your experience that a friend of mine, when I told her that story, and particularly say I told the story when I, and I use the same phrase when I told it to you, I said uh, that my husband had said to me, explain to Madame that it's not fair. And I told that to a friend of mine who said, you know, those three words have probably been the most complex, the most troublesome words in the history of the world. You know, it's not fair. It isn't fair. Nothing is fair. Things come out the way they do. But if we take the world as personal, then it's not fair. It doesn't always happen, the right things happening to the right people. It shouldn't be like that, but it is. So it's not a question of fair. The other thing that she said about, um, you should put them down, we would if we could. She said it's in the past. Well, the thing is, it is in the past. But it's not in the past when you remember it in the present. You know, think about the kinds of things that go through your mind here. People sit here nicely, feeling very comfortable, come on retreat with every intention to sit with a serene mind. Everything here supports serenity. Might be sitting, it's certainly been my experience, and then sitting in out of the blue comes some memory from who knows where in the past that brings with it the same bad feelings that were there five years or ten years or forty years ago. Is that not so? And in the moment, it's in the present. It's not in the past. Now it's back in the present. The uh, psychologist uh, Stan Groff, who lives here in Marin, and probably many of you know, know his work, described the mind as being like a sewing box. You know, when you, in the old-fashioned sewing boxes, you had... Um, bobbins to put different colors of threads on. And he said, every time an experience happens to us, it gets filed on a bobbin with that same valence of experience. Times I was humiliated, times I was frightened, times this, times that. He said, every kind of experience gets filed on a bobbin. Times I felt I was unfairly treated is a bobbin. And he said, and when something happens to jog that memory, not only do we have that memory, but the whole bobbin often unrolls with the whole story of all the times in my life that same thing happened to me. So the past is never really gone. It, it's not happening now, but it exists in memory. The main important thing that I think that Madame said, which I was missing in, until she said it, said, they're bad for you, you should let them go, it's in the past... But then she said, these things happen. And that, I think, is really important about everything. These things happen. Somebody says it's going to be like this, and it's like that, and we're disappointed about it. How much the mind is able to say, this isn't what I wanted about anything, but it's what I've got, because these are the things that happen. I didn't want to pay an extra 400 euro for my mattress, but it's what happened. It's a very small thing in the world of what happens. One of my very closest and dearest friends died last week, last Wednesday. She had been sick with pancreas cancer for nearly two years, which is a very long time to have that cancer. And she died at home, and... Uh, We've certainly been very close way before she got sick and very close throughout her sickness. 
And one of the things that uh, we talked about throughout the whole time, because she did every kind of treatment and was really, a couple of times it seemed like there were new treatments and she might really have some years left. She said, you know, most of the time I'm all right with this. Most of the time I think to myself, I'm really sad. But then I realized to myself, these things happen. She said, and then other times I think to myself, why me? They don't happen to everybody. Why me? She said, and then I feel really bad. And she said, and then sometimes after I've been thinking why me for a while, I think, why not me? Things happen. These things happen to everybody. It's that sort of awareness that these things happen, everything happens to everybody, that I think, for me at least, conditions such an intention to use every moment of this quite short life, to use it in a way that keeps my own heart happy and makes the people around me happy. I don't really think that there's anything more that inspires me to make a space around mauvaise émotion as soon as I can find that they're there. Not give a lot of airtime to them. Notice them. Not pretend that they're not there. And then look for something that will make a space around those mauvaise émotions so that they're not so confining, so that I can remember that there's a world around me, that there are other things in it. There were, in Martha's life, there was her illness, and there were all the people who loved her so much and with whom her relationships were so sweet and intense and dear. There was between us uh, a very lovely link of humor. The both of us have the same sort of quirky sense of humor. We laugh at the same things. And uh, when normally we would talk on the phone every day and we'd laugh about something. There would be, in the course of the conversation, something that would strike us both funny. And uh, one, of the, one of the last things that we said that made any sense between us when she was, oh, in the last two weeks of her life and in and out of a lot of heavy sleeping and on a lot of drugs. I was standing next to her bed and we were talking to each other and she said something and then she forgot the drift of it in the middle and she forgot where she was going and she said, uh, she said, sometimes I get confused. She was on a lot of opiates. And she said, sometimes I get confused. I said, well, that's all right that you're confused. And she said, uh, well, I worry that I might be boring. <laughs> so I said, sweetheart, I guarantee you, in your whole entire life, the one thing you never was, was boring. And she laughed, and I laughed, and she said, you know what? I set that up. <laughs> and I said, I know you did. <laughs> And I thought about it so much later. There are all kinds of things that you say at somebody's bedside, like, I love you, and you did great, and all of that. But I thought, when I I reflected on it so much, how dear that moment was to me. Because it was as if she was, her heart was wanting for her to say to me, 
as a message. I take it that way. It's okay. It's all right, Sylvia. We can play up to this last minute. I am choosing to read that that way. We have the choice up to the last minute. If we remember, we can make a bigger space. I need, in order to be able to do that, to be able to concentrate so that I can compose the mind, so that I'm not frightened. I need to be able to have enough mindfulness to be able to say, this is the truth, this is what's happening. I need that space for my own good heart to manifest itself. I wanted to read a a poem to you. This is as good a place as any. Because I wanted to make the point, because I'm interested in Billy Collins, actually, and I like Billy Collins' poetry, and I wanted some place to read read this poem, because I I don't have to tell you, it's self-evident. It's a poem that makes the point that what you need in order to make a space larger than the uh, annoyance of the moment to sometimes work very hard. I think that's what happens, by the way. From moment to moment, we become annoyed by something. Too much traffic, too bad a diagnosis, too much uh, broccoli for lunch, too much (laughs) bad news in the newspaper, too many this, too many that. The mind, I think, is very easily annoyed. You know what I really like to think about? I, uh, I was present once in a very large lecture where the Dalai Lama was teaching, and someone asked the question. They said, uh, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. And he said it with his little laugh. You know, he has a certain little laugh. So he said, of course. <laughs> he has a little laugh that he does all the time. Then he said, of course, <laughs> but... He said, but it's not a problem. And I thought that that's exactly it. That, you know, we get startled and we get angry, but it's, it doesn't need to be a problem. And my understanding of that is in a mind grounded enough in the wisdom that that anger clouds the mind and leads to nothing good, that the anger immediately is dispelled by that wisdom. It's immediately dispelled by the good heart that wants to keep itself sweet. So this gives me a chance to read you the Billy Collins. This poem is called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and I put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, (laughs) as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, (laughs) that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) 
I'm really glad you like it. It's part <laughs> It's currently one of my favorite things in the world. I just don't get tired of it. I look for possibilities to read it. How to keep the mind from falling in on itself. I think the biggest way to keep it from falling in on itself, actually, is not to keep it from falling in on itself, which it regularly does, but how to keep it awake to the fact that it has fallen in on itself and could do otherwise is the awareness that it could do otherwise, that we have that choice. Once upon a time, a very long time ago, it was a really an important moment in my own meditation practice. So maybe it's 30 years ago, a long, long time ago. I was um, a retreatant in Yucca Valley. And so many of you maybe are familiar with that facility. And it was a day on, in which, for whatever reason, I had sometime in the day thought of some event in my life coming up of years ago, as it is, you just as I said before, sitting there nicely, and all of a sudden, boom, as if out of left field, here comes an unhappy thought of the past. I actually have this thought, and this I don't have any way to validate this scripturally or any other way, that the heart has a certain amount of unprocessed material there that it really needs to have looked at, and it saves it when the mind gets a little bit relaxed and quiet and says, I notice that you're in a good mood up there. <laughs> and I, I, I don't think it means to do it out of spite. Like, just for that, you're in a good mood, I'm going to do this. But here's a chance to heal this moment. I think so. So here you are sitting there nicely, minding your own business, and boom, here comes some thought. And it's, in the moment, I found it quite sad. I, truth to tell, I do not remember what it was about. But it was about something in my life that I found in the moment quite touching, and I felt sad for myself. And then in the way of Stan Groff's bobbins, I had a whole afternoon of one after another event in that same valence unroll itself. And by the end of the afternoon, I was quite an emotional mess and crying and really feeling so down and I was uh, new enough to meditation, but happy with, as a meditator, and I loved being on retreat. And it was ordinarily quite comfortable. And I was just beside myself. I felt like I could not pull myself together. And it was the end of the day. It would be the equivalent of whatever time tea time is here. And I got up off my zafu and uh, walked out of the meditation hall, and I thought to myself, I don't know what I'll do with myself. Maybe I'll go to my cabin and take a shower. That'll maybe pick me up a little bit. Uh, I was looking for some way to somehow stop this torrent of unhappy feelings and unhappy thoughts, which seemed quite out of control and quite like a cloud around me. So I set off in the direction of my the cabin that I was staying in, some half mile away. And just then the bell rang for tea. And in those days, tea was really tea. It was just tea. And on, a, on, on certain days that were uh, special, there were maybe tea and a plum or tea <laughs> and an apple. Do you remember the tea and a plum and the tea of the apple? And on some days, there were tea and a cookie, actually. And I remember having the thought, I wonder if there are cookies for tea. <laughs> now, it's really important that I tell you that because the truth is, I don't 
like sugar. I wouldn't have eaten the cookies. So it wasn't that lust or any kind of desire arose around the cookies. Because I, I, I just have never liked sugar very much in my life. So it wasn't that I wanted a cookie. And in fact, it was a, quite a neutral thought. I wonder if they're going to have cookies for tea. And what I also noticed was that in that moment of just wondering if there were going to be cookies for tea, there was no suffering in that moment. And the sadness of the whole day that had seemed so enormous, that seemed to have filled up my whole being so that I couldn't think outside of it or see outside of it, in that moment, it was just like a free moment. I wonder if there are cookies for tea. Unproblematic moment. And I realized that that was my chance. It was probably at the time that, this was probably around 1979, 80, something like that, probably a time of uh, shuttle launchings from Cape Canaveral. And I had the image of, sometimes when you watch a shuttle launch, they have the shuttles on the launch pad and they say, we're at 17 seconds and counting, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13 now we're holding, there's something the matter. And then, now we're counting. And then sometimes they say, now we're holding, it's seven seconds and counting because there's cloud cover. And we can't do this launch until there isn't cloud cover. And then if you watched and long enough, they'd say, okay, there's a break in the cloud, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zoom. And I thought to myself, I'm out of here. I am out of here. There is a break in the clouds and I am out of here. I had a free moment and it was so clear to me that I could go back to the story of woe is me, look at that, this happened, that happened, the other thing happened. Or that was my chance to put it down and choose something else. It didn't negate the stories of my childhood. It didn't mean that they didn't happen. It didn't mean that I had then healed them all. I don't know what it meant about the stories of my childhood. It just meant that in that moment, I didn't have to give them any more airtime. I could in that moment choose something else. I sometimes think to myself that another way, another way I think about liberation is the ability to choose. That here comes some intercurrent mind state, here comes a thought, and the ability to say, I see you, like here are the armies of Mara, I see you, but no thank you. I have concentration, mindfulness, I have the power of blessing, my wisdom is intact. My effort is strong. I have faith. By the way, those are the five spiritual powers that the Buddha recites to Mara in his firm conviction that he cannot be moved from that place. Sometimes I wonder, actually, if um, wisdom isn't... Uh, if if uh, um, intention isn't the key to really all of mindfulness and concentration and blessing, being able to be put into motion and be effective for rebalancing the mind, allowing for wisdom and allowing for one's own natural good heart to manifest itself. That having set that intention, that the mind is set to notice when it's off that intention, uh-oh. Sometimes I remember immediately, sometimes I don't. 
Here's one more story, and it comes in my mind, so I hope it works at this point. <laughs> On this last trip, coming back to the United States, um, I noticed as we were boarding in the boarding lounge that uh, people in the boarding lounge are uh, queuing up kind of in a big mob rather than in an orderly line. And I actually, I decided this might not be true, but I think maybe because it's my, my own personal experience that they're sort of surging onto the plane because they're already all nervous about the fact that it's an 11-hour and 45-minute flight. It's a long flight. Everybody's a little tense getting on it. It seemed on this particular flight that uh, there were um, more people unhappy with their seat assignment than usual when we got in. By the time we got into our seat, there were people who were saying, I, just, I, I cannot sit in the middle section. You know the middle section? Some people say, I can't sit in the middle section. I just can't do it. I called the airlines months ago. I said, I can't sit in the middle section. Here I am in the middle section. Here's another person saying, what am I doing in this seat? My whole family is four rows up from me. Why am I here? We have the same last name. Here is another person saying, I said I needed an aisle seat. I have a bad ankle. I need to stick my leg out. And here I am. And then somebody else is saying, I really asked for a window seat because I need to lean against the window and sleep. Everybody was in a bad mood. And sit down, the plane goes out to the end of the runway, and it stops. And after a long while, the pilot comes on and says, unfortunately, I'm announcing that uh, there's a very big fog come in over uh, the whole airport, so they're slowing the takeoffs. And you feel a little bit, in the plane. <laughs> but then the mind corrects it right away because the mind says, oh, good, don't take off in a fog. You know, so the heart falls down. We're going to have to stand there in the fog. But the mind says, good, good, don't fly until you can see where you're going. So it picks it up a little bit. Wisdom and discernment is very helpful in those kinds of cases. Don't fly yet. But it also turned out that there were a tremendous number of toddlers on this flight who cry in a particularly irritating way, more than infants, and who did not feel like sitting in their car seats in restraints for an hour while we stood on the runways. A lot of shrieking infants. And the flight attendants are patrolling the aisles and giving looks about you have to keep your child strapped in and people are rolling their eyes at each other and everyone is... High level of irritation, and the plane finally, finally, an hour later, the plane takes off. Everybody irritable. And the truth is that uh, I also wasn't in a good shape, but not actually from all of this. Uh, my husband and I, uh, normally the best of friends, had managed to irritate each other the day before, so offend each other that we weren't speaking to each other. <laughs> so. Because we actually don't fight. We pout rather than fight. So uh, I am sitting with outside as a fog and inside as a fog at the same, mirroring fogs. And the plane takes off. And uh, we fly, 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 fly about five hours. And just as the, you watch the little uh, screen in front of you to see where your plane is, and because it's so reassuring to see that it's making progress going in the direction that it is. Well, it is. You know, it's a piece of knowledge. This too shall pass. You see, you notice it. So you see that little icon of a plane moving across Greenland. 
and it's just cleared the western edge of Greenland, and then it turns around on the screen <laughs> and starts heading back towards France. And you know, everybody's looking at each other because they are, everybody's on the same on everybody's screen, looking. And, you know, and uh, by and by, the pilot came on and said, "If there's any medical personnel on board, please come forward." So you know right away something is not good. Um, in fact, my husband is a physician, so he went up in the front and was gone for about an hour. In the meantime, everybody's watching this little plane go back the other way. And the plane got quieter. You know, I think that the irritability level, I imagined that the irritability level went down. Because I imagine at that time, everybody's priorities get refixed. You know, where your ankle is, is not so key at that point. And whether or not you can lean on the side of the plane. And they say, well, we're going to, then by and by they come on and they say, we're going to land in Halifax. Uh, we need some emergency aid. So we're watching the plane. And then by and by it turns around again. It's going in the direction of Halifax. Now it turns around again. And it's going westward again. And then the pilot comes on and says, well, we'll be landing in three hours now in Edmonton. So then you know that whoever was stricken is not is beyond any kind of medical aid. And they actually announced that they were going to refuel in Edmonton. And no one talked to each other about what had happened. But um, my own sense was that the plane got quieter. And maybe it didn't. Maybe only my own mind got quieter. One of the ways that I think about... Um, clear-mindedness, paying attention, getting the priorities right. Is it, if I'm not paying attention, my head gets not screwed on right. If I do pay attention, it screws itself on right, in which case I remember really what's important and the kinds of things that I get offended by. It's nothing. People offend each other all the time. People who are together for decades offend each other. It's one of the things that people do. It's not a big deal. I mean, the big deals are the fact that this is a very short life. For some people, shorter than others. But for everyone, it's finite. Everyone knows the Mary Oliver line about what will we do with this one wonderful life. Wild and precious life. Everybody knows it so well, I've forgotten it. <laughs> so maybe I want to read you one more Billy Collins and then tell you one more story. This is a poem called Picnic, Lightning. It is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safe strapped from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics, but still, we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within. The heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch. The power shut off like a switch or a tiny 
or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain a monastery defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower boxes and press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, red-brown pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against a round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. One of the things that I've missed the most about being here in February is that the trees really start to bloom and that from the beginning of February to the end of February, the tree that what you met with bare branches on the beginning of February now is getting more and more pink every day. And all around the, 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 the spring flowers are coming up. I, th- I thought the other day about the Robert Louis Stevenson line about the world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. In order to do that, we need to be able to see all the things. I think of the mind as being so startleable that something happens and it closes in and then it only sees the thing it's looking at. And when it relaxes, when we take some breaths, when we look at what's happening and what else is happening, we see, yes, this is happening and everything else is happening. The world full of its marvels, doing this and doing that. Of course, rising and passing away in its time, as we will too, but something quite marvelous about the regularity of it all. One of the things that the mind makes a mistake about is it judges things. It says, oh, this is a bad thing that's happening, or this is a good thing that's happening. What I've been thinking about a lot is how much things are just things that are happening. And that everything that happens has so much of a ripple of effects around it. I'll tell you this story as the last thing I'll tell you, but I'll disguise the names just to protect the people. So we'll say a woman named um, Jane, uh, an old woman named Jane, uh, died in uh, December. I didn't know Jane But I know a man named John, also not his name, but I know a man named John who was a neighbor of Jane. And Jane said, I need a, uh, a, um, I need a, uh, I need to feel that my cat, Jane had a 21 pound cat, big, huge, enormous cat. I need a home for my cat. I'm not happy about dying and leaving the cat. And John said, I'll take care of getting a home for that cat. So John took the cat when Jane died. He told his friend Joel, um, 
about the need for a home for this cat. Joelle is a partner of my friend Martha, who died. And when Martha was in the hospital, three weeks before she died at home, she was in the hospital for an acute phase of her illness. Joelle, one afternoon, because she especially liked one particular nurse who was taking care of Martha, out of the blue said, would you like to adopt a cat? Didn't say it to anyone else. She said it to this particular nurse who said, you know, I haven't been thinking of having a cat, but I'll take that cat. I'll take it home and see how it works out. I'll try it. So the cat got taken to her house. And the story was that the quite a magical meeting. The cat sailed into that house as if it had been there forever and loved the house and purred and meowed and made himself entirely ingratiating himself to the nurse whose house it was by in the way that cats do. They rub up against you and they look friendly and they purr and meow. And She fell in love with the cat and agreed to keep it. Turned out later that the cat came with a substantial uh, gift, financial gift along with it, uh, to keep it going. But she hadn't known about that when she adopted the cat. She just took the cat. Cat came with a substantial uh, gift to keep it cared for. The person who adopted the cat many years ago adopted a child in Nepal. Raised it here, that child has grown and gone back to Nepal and is teaching school there. He knows of a family there that needs a house, a home over their heads, a house really badly. The legacy that the cat brought is now going to Nepal to build a house for that family. It's just a long story of a chain of events in the middle of which is a phase of Martha's illness. I think the story to myself a lot. We told that story back and forth in the days that Martha was dying. Because one thing is that Martha was dying. Another thing is that a lot of people who loved her got to be with each other and have the experience of being in an aura of love around this experience, profound experience of passing and discovering for each other that it's really all right. So that we all know better than we knew before that when it gets to be our time, it's really okay. That was probably the best lesson we had. In the meantime, we are enjoying thinking about this family in Nepal who's going to have a house and about this 21-pound cat (laughs) who's very happy in his new home. So there's a way in which in the most profound of circumstances which seem sad, the mind is big enough to remember that this is one circumstance connected to all the consequences that come out of this moment. It's one circumstance that is the karma of all the circumstances before it, and it's a circumstance that creates karma into the world from this point on. Then the mind holds even the profoundness and the sadness of uh, an experience like this in much more space. I think it goes from being a sad thing to being a holy thing, like everything is. So I'm very happy to have come, and thank you very much for inviting me.
It's the best possible thing to not be here and be able to be here too. (laughs) So I thank all my friends for inviting me. And even my husband who came to listen to me and had to hear about my bad behavior again. (laughs) So I wish you a very good end of your retreat. Let's sit for one minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 21, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.